Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and on today's show I'll be joined again by more international and Irish experts who drive our world of business and politics. And on today's show, it's all about the numbers. Firstly, what would a 30% tax rate cost the Exchequer and how difficult is it to actually construct a new tax rate? I'll be joined by a tax expert to look beyond the political implications and we'll talk about what it would mean for the national balance sheet and more importantly for your pay packet. And how does a novel set in the 1860s, published in the 1930s, relate to America in 2022? Well, the new book looks at the myth-making that sprung up following the American Civil War right through to the current debates that are happening around racism and the far right in the United States. Author Sarah Churchwell is joining me to discuss her new book, The Wrath to Come. And finally, just how many people find feedback in the workplace helpful? Does it work? Do you even listen to it? And is it ultimately constructive? The deputy editor of the Financial Times weekend magazine, Esther Bintliff, will join us with her assessment following a deep dive that she did into the subject. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. First up today, we're going to start with that issue of feedback in the workplace because performance management is now a big, big business. And let's face it, most of us are involved in some form of annual appraisal or review. There's lots and lots of research into giving of feedback, but the question of how we receive it has been less studied. But I'm joined now from London by Esther Bintleff from the Financial Times. Esther, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on News Talk today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, as I said, there we're all involved of some type of appraisal nowadays. It's part and parcel of virtually every employment landscape. I've certainly been on the receiving end of lots of it. I've given a lot of it and I absolutely hate the process no matter what side of it I'm on. But I just want to look, first of all, in theory, what this is actually designed to do. Why do we care about feedback to begin with? And why do we want to give feedback at all? That's a really good question. I think, you know, one of the reasons is that um, we kind of see things that are going wrong at work. And often, you know, it's human nature. We work in teams. Um, we can observe things that colleagues are doing and feel the urge to tell them. And then there's a whole question about what is the best way to do that? Um, should we do it at all? One of the academics I spoke to for my piece about feedback actually said, essentially, when we when we want to give feedback, it's because we want to change something in someone else. And he believes that quite problematic really because often people know there's a problem and would like to change but haven't been able to for probably a good reason so just wanting them to change and telling them what's wrong will not necessarily do the trick um, if it's not done in the right way. Yeah so that's the fundamental reason why we do it but when we receive criticism and this is the part that really intrigued me because we've seen lots and lots of stuff about how you do the feedback but when Mm. you as an individual hear criticism and, and hear feedback we process it in a particular way, don't we? It's a bit like grief. Can you talk us through yeah. the stages that we, we yeah. go through? Well, this is a theory that was actually um, introduced to me by my husband and he heard it from an actor called Bradley Whitford who was in The West Wing. It must be and, true. Uh, exactly. Um, and Bradley says <clears throat> that um, as an actor, whenever he got feedback from a director, he went through three stages. And the first stage I don't actually know if I'm allowed to say the F word. Um, Probably not the F word, but we know what you're talking about. I'm just going to say the first stage is F you. 
Um, and the second stage is I suck, so where you feel really bad about yourself. And the third stage, Bradley Whip says, is okay, what? Um, my husband prefers let's make it better, which I think is, is quite helpful. Um, so, yeah, but most of us tend to get stuck in one or two. So we might be more of the F word person or more of the I suck. I'm more of an I suck person. I tend to get very low and just think I'm terrible at this thing. This person's criticized me about, you know, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, and that, the question is, how do you get to the third stage? Quickly? Yeah, that, that, that can be very damaging if you get stuck on one of those two uh, phases and you can't move beyond it and learn from the experience. And ultimately, that's not what feedback is designed to do. So the whole process is failing. But um, one of the interesting things uh, that you had in, in your in your article, which was a deep dive into this whole area, was mm. we we tend to assume that you know, we're all we're all capable of building some inbuilt skill that we have that we know how to deal effectively with criticism or with feedback. So that's not always the case. Is is there some things we can do to learn how to to deal with maybe criticism on a professional level in a better way? Yeah, I think all of the academics I spoke to about this were gave quite helpful advice to me. Um, one of the things is to start from a growth mindset, which is basically saying, thinking to yourself, if you know you're going to get feedback, trying to think this is going to help me grow rather than this is going to hurt me. Um, I'm, you know, I'm going to be upset by this. Try and think like this is actually something that's aimed at helping me improve. The other thing is when you get feedback in that moment, just, just accept that you're probably going to have an emotional response and don't worry about that and pause Take it in, don't respond immediately and observe your feelings with curiosity and just be like, oh, that's interesting. I'm having that response again. I'm feeling a bit low. But then over time, you can come back to it and try to come up with some actionable tasks, like um, things that you can actually do about the feedback rather than it just being this sort of abstract thing. Um, and the other thing is, you know, just to just to realize that, you know, not all feedback is, is going to be correct. But there might be, there's usually like maybe 5 or 10% of it that you can agree with. Um, and one of the people I spoke to, Kim Scott, suggested that it's good to kind of fix that aspect theatrically, to show your boss that you're willing and that you're keen and you're listening. Um, and then later, if there's still stuff you disagree, come back when you're both sort of, you know, out of that immediate scenario and say, you know, thank you, there is this aspect that I'm not, that I disagree with and this is why. Yeah, because... You know, the process is supposed to be designed to help both the employer and the employee. But there is that danger if you're telling somebody that they're not good at something and um, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Much mm. like if you tell a child, a child, you're not good at art, it can get inbuilt and they might get stuck on that. Um, what, what are the learnings we can take from how as a manager you might behave in a better way during these feedback sessions? I think the biggest thing um, is to not focus on someone's personality. Mm. So that's one of the worst things you can do is to is to use what they call ego-involving feedback, which is where you tell someone something that is, is about them as a person and it makes them think they can never change. So it's, it's a deactivating emotion, they say. Um, so you should keep it really task-focused. And also it should be given quite quickly, like while they're doing the task or just after, rather than saving it all up you know, for an annual appraisal. If you just give it as you're going and also give lots of praise as and when it's, it's needed, because then it just feels like more of an ongoing conversation. And the third thing is just um, give some ideas of how to achieve it or, or how you can support it. Um, so in the piece of this example of um, Kim Scott, who, who was told by Sheryl Sandberg when she worked at Google that she said, um, too much in her presentations. 
Um, and Cheryl Sandberg said, we, Google can send you to a speech coach. And that's an example of sort of giving very concrete suggestions of how, how you can help and support the person and help them feel it's doable. Yeah, that was an interesting story because she said it kind of made her appear not as intelligent stupid. as she was. Can yeah, we, we the use... word was stupid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th- that brings up the issue of, of candor in, in a situation, mm. uh, in, a, in a work environment, like how honest can you be um, in, in a working environment? Um, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. Just to remind yeah. people, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. And we're talking to Esther Bintliff from the Financial Times about how to deal with professional feedback. So um, on that issue of professional candour in the workplace, um, you also mentioned a book that was published in 2017, uh, which was called Radical Candour, I think, and it became a New York Times bestseller. I was intrigued about why so many people would want a book of that nature. Why do you think something like that would take off? Is HR and how to manage HR becoming increasingly important in that managerial CEO uh, landscape? Yeah, definitely. And I think in in the tech world particularly, you know, there's this idea of trying to um, increase efficiency and and that if you can um, tell people when they're doing stuff wrong, then the whole business will work more smoothly. Um, but I think also, I mean, this book was, was really directed at, at CEOs and leaders. Um, and I think it's a particular kind of person who can take some of the radical candor that that Kim Scott sort of advocates. Not everyone will respond that well to it. I mean, and she has come round to that. And in fact, um, so there, sorry, know, so there are particular sorry. personality types that are better at responding. Is is that what this concludes? Well, I think. I mean, her example uh, where Cheryl Sandberg did say she sounded stupid. You know, when I interviewed Kim Scott, I said to her, I mean, I felt like she responded very well to that because if I'd had that feedback, I'd been really upset. And Kim Scott said, to be honest, Esther, you probably wouldn't have got to that point. Like, there are some people have to be more candid. If you're someone who doesn't listen very much to your boss or is very confident, then your boss might need to be more candid. Whereas if you're quite, like, hypersensitive to criticism, which I am, probably, like, the first thing Cheryl Sandberg said to Kim Scott, which was just, like, um, you said, um, quite a lot. Did you know that? I would have really, really listened and gone, I'm so sorry, what can I possibly do about that? So... It sort of is quite personality based. You have to tailor feedback give, depending on the person's personality a bit. Um, and that's why having a, a, a good relationship with each employee is important that you understand them. Now, you've mentioned your own reactions on a couple of occasions there. You took part in a little bit of feedback as part of your research. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, one of the um, academics I spoke to, this Israeli academic called Abraham Kluger, he um, doesn't, he started off studying feedback, but he then, over decades of studying it, became a feedback sceptic and um, basically now believes that it's so risky and it can really backfire so much that he doesn't think it's that useful at all. Um, and he suggests something else, which is called a feed-forward interview, which he offered to do with me. And um, it basically was completely different from feedback, but it, it involved him asking me about a time at work that I felt really alive and really like I was enjoying my job and to talk about it in detail. And then at the end of it, he sort of said, you know, what were the things, what were the conditions that you needed to, to get to that point? And do you feel that you're moving closer to those conditions now or further away in your job? And the point of it was that in talking about a time when I've been really happy at work, I was sort of able to look at my job now and work out 
you know, what it is that I need to perform well and uh, am I getting further away from that or closer to it and therefore give myself some feedback. And that's what he believes is actually the most effective way to sort of improve performance. Um, and he would like to see that, you know, being used much more widely. Is it fair to say, though, that the the world and the work environment that we're in now has changed radically? Look, post-COVID, the war for talent is huge everywhere. So you have to be mindful of your staff's happiness and how content they are in the roles and maybe a way that we weren't before. So, you know, the the notion of someone yelling or screaming, you know, that's that's does that happen anymore? Or can we just say that that's consigned to the history bins or are there is there evidence to show that that type of um behavior still exists in workplaces i mean i i think it should be consigned to the history books because quite apart from whether or not um you know we we can cope with it it, it's just shown to be really unproductive to shout at someone or to give them that kind of feedback It, it almost will always backfire um but unfortunately you know there are businesses where that still happens and and we know that a lot of the reporting of the FT has shown that over time, but it shouldn't, it doesn't, it doesn't really work well. Um, but there are certainly places where that continues, I'm afraid. And I think if you have a, a workforce um, where you have a particular leader, business leader who um, may, you know, have a personality that is, is kind of aggressive and that might have helped in the past and they may, may therefore use some of those techniques with their employees. But um, I think in the long term, it probably doesn't work well. And just to to examine the notion of how effective feedback is, is there any kind of research to show like it does work, it doesn't work? Does it actually bring people forward? Did you examine any mm. of that side of it? Like, is there empirical evidence yeah. to show? Well, so the, so Abraham Kluge, this, this academic, he did one of the most sort of seminal studies in the history of feedback. Um, and he showed, along with his colleague, that about 37% of the time, feedback um, actually backfired. So it wasn't even that it didn't help, it actually made it worse. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, you can look at that two ways. You can say, okay, well, but still the majority of the time it did help, but it's quite a high failure rate. Um, and so that is the problem is that if, if you have a relationship with your boss that is good and that where you both um, understand each other quite well and, and crucially that where you, the employee, feels cared for by your boss and that they have your best interests in mind, then I think it can be really helpful. Mm. Um, but it's risky if that is not there. So there's quite a few variables um, that can affect whether it's successful or not. Yeah, I think it's not just that it's it's a high failure rate. It's also really counterproductive because it could put you on a completely different and negative trajectory um, yeah. with, with your boss. And if the whole thing is designed to make things better and it, it doesn't do that, then the system is ultimately failing. But I just want to go back to that, that little experiment that you engaged in yourself um, mm-hmm. because that notion of of projecting forward as opposed to reviewing and looking back in little boxes as we often do is very far removed from a lot of the corporate uh, reviews that we see about performance management which Mm -hmm. are all about numbers and ticking boxes so Mm -hmm. do you think that a more kind of personally invested model is advisable for the future is there any signs that's you know, that type of thing could be looked at in a closer way by large corporations? Is there any evidence to suggest that they might look at a more, you know, let's say emotionally intelligent model in the future? Mm, I mean, I would hope so. I think the problem is that as with many of these things, you know, feedback became a sort of big business. Um, And as you say, like many of us are forced to take part in these sort of 
box ticking exercises these days, which make huge amounts of money. I mean, it's like a multi-billion dollar business around the world. So it's, I think it's almost like quite hard to stop that and change it mm. um, quickly. But I'm hopeful that it will. And I had a lot of um, business leaders actually write to me after this piece um, and say how interesting they found it. So I think over time, like, you know, hopefully the research and the data on effectiveness will start to seep through into consciousness um, and into sort of HR circles. And it is an evolving thing. Um, and I think, if anything, feedbacks become a bit too ubiquitous, you know, with mm. constantly, even as customers being asked to give feedback on things. And I don't know about you, but I find it quite annoying. I'm like, I don't have time to <laughs> give feedback on every single product or shop I go to. So I think we might read a, we, we might meet a sort of tipping point where um, where we we businesses start to rethink it and say how much of this do we actually need? What's useful? Well, I'm not surprised in the least, Esther, that you've had a lot of people on. It was a fascinating article. I think, oh, as you, you as you've said there, the relationship between the two people, the individuals, is is the most important thing here. If you feel that your superior is actually trying to help you, then you're you're probably uh, more likely to to appreciate the process at least yeah. uh, okay but for now we'll have to leave it there that's Esther Bintliff of the Financial Times Esther thank you so much for joining us today thank you this is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock coming up next 30% tax rate what could it mean for your personal take home pay packet and why is it proving so politically problematic that's after the break This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, the tax strategy group, we've heard a lot about it in recent weeks. It's not a decision-making body, but every year a group made up of senior officials and political advisors from several different government departments and offices produce a list of options and the issues that the government will consider for the budgetary process. This year, they looked at introducing a third rate of income tax in order to increase the amount of money that someone can earn before their tax at the higher rate of 40%. It's caused many political divisions, but what about the detail and how much will it cost the exchequer and how, more importantly, might it impact you. To discuss all of this, I'm joined now by Marion Ryan, who's Consumer Tax Manager with Taxbacks. Marion, thank you very much uh, for joining us today on News Talk. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Now, before we get stuck into the detail of what's proposed, just remind us what the current tax brackets are. Yeah, so here in Ireland, we have two main tax brackets. So you have a 20% rate and a 40% rate. So any income you earn up to €36,800, euros, you pay tax at PAY tax, your income tax at a rate of 20%. And every euro over and above that, then you pay it at a 40% rate. So there's a two tier system here in Ireland, which is quite progressive, really. And I suppose they're looking at, well, what was proposed was a 30% bracket there to target those middle income earners. So rather than jumping straight into paying 40% tax there, that for the next €10,000 after that, up to €46,000, you would pay tax at a 30% rate. So that is what is being proposed there in that package. Okay. Now, um, any notion uh, of how much, firstly, this would cost the exchequer? Um, It would cost the exchequer in around €820 a year mm. to implement that. That's if they increase the band by 10,000 10, euros. So 30% there on the next 10,000 euros of earnings there. It's about 820 million in the first year and probably 945 million in the second year, which sounds like a lot. And mm. it is a lot of money there. I suppose when we break it down, the value to kind of each taxpayer, then mm. it, it's about 1,000 euros, it would mean. So if you 
were earning, say, 50,000 euros in the year, you'd be able to avail of the full 30% bracket there. And that's cash in your pocket, which is most important to people, of 1,000 euros per person per year. Grand. There. So that's the value kind of in layman's terms, in realistic terms for ourselves. OK, so that's how much you would get in your pocket. Right. Yeah. How many people might benefit from that 30% intermediate rate um, based on the bands that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, overall about 35% of all taxpayers, so anyone that's working and eligible to pay tax, will actually benefit there. So it's really going for the, the middle income earners there. So like if we think about it, even of all people that are working in, in Ireland here, all the potential taxpayers, 72% of them actually are paying tax. So there's going to be about 30% of people that actually aren't earning enough to pay any income tax there. And those of us that will benefit from that, there will be 35% of all the taxpayers. So I suppose anyone earning above €36,000 rate okay. in the year would benefit from it. So, so Marion, households right across the country are already feeling a huge impact from inflation. Things are going to get worse as the, the year progresses. What about the lower income earners? Would this new rate help them at all? No, is is the is the very short answer on it there. And personally, I I, I kind of I never like to kind of get into the us versus them or kind of pitting the the middle income earners against the lower income earners. There, this this rate, the thirty percent rate, no, it will not benefit the the lower income earners. So if you are earning twenty to thirty five thousand euros in the year, zero is the, the net benefit to yourself on that. What would benefit them more would be if there's an increase in maybe the personal tax credits there, if which is most likely going to happen. What I would anticipate is I'm, I would be very surprised if they introduced the 30% rate this year. It's just, it'll be too quick for the revenue to have to ch- update their systems to implement it. The, the stress they will put on employers and on payroll managers to, to update their systems and change everything there would be huge. What I would anticipate being more likely is that maybe it's going to be a medium to long term goal mm. that maybe maybe in two years time they have to give people time to, <laughs> to put systems in place. Yeah. Further. And let's let's examine what that um, introduction of a new tax rate would mean from a couple of perspectives. First of all, from the mm. revenues perspective, it's not, you know, OK, they can they can do it because it's 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 a system that they, they have to change. But I want to look at it from mm. practitioners or even from small to medium businesses. Talk talk, talk to us or tell us about the type of changes a small business would have to make to make this work for them if it was introduced in, in the September budget for 2023. I suppose it's simply think for like these payroll managers, again, it's the payroll options. It's probably going to cost the investment for them because they'll have to, their payroll system, if they're using Sage or SAP or whatever they're using there, there'll have to be an update, there'll have to be new training for the payroll operatives there to, to do it and, and apply it for them when it comes to the actual costing of it. It's, it's not going to cost employers anymore because they're just making the deduction from it there. But like for for manpower perspective, I suppose it does cost the employers. And I suppose employers are probably still reeling from, and I hate to mention it, the pandemic and the EWSS and mm. TWSS. I think the thoughts of payroll managers have to get to grips with something else again, is stressing them out across the country. Now, it's, it is something that can be done. And as I said, if it was on a medium to long-term goal, it's something they can make plans for. Systems would be updated. They'd be ready to go in 12, 18 months' time. But to announce something on the 27th of September and expect it to be flawless by the 1st of January is is a lot of stress for employers, I'd, I would imagine. 
Yeah, that may, might make sense that, you know, politically they're holding out the hope that this might happen in the future. Um, promising it now is probably a step too far, but it does, I suppose, pigeonhole different parties into different camps on it because, you know, the tax band is, is or tax rate is something that people, most people can easily understand when you start tinkering around with credits um, and allowances and stuff. It's it's less likely to capture the public imagination. Just just for a moment, can we look at the negative side of what might happen uh, the individual taxpayer if the proposal were to be undertaken? And I don't want to frighten anybody or you that, that it might actually happen this year. But what about the other things that it might affect like tax reliefs how would they be impacted yeah so that, yeah so I suppose the big kind of worry and the Green Party themselves had, had highlighted this as well is that so things like pension relief that people are getting we're always encouraged to to put into our pension as much as we possibly can and that is done by giving tax relief at the marginal rate so when I say you're getting tax relief at the marginal rate it's that you're getting tax at relief at the highest percentage tax you're paying mm. if you're paying 40% tax on your income and you put in 10,000 euros into your pension, if you're lucky enough to have 10,000 euros to contribute to your pension, you get a tax relief of 40% less. So that's 4,000 euros that's coming back to you. But if we introduce the 30% tax rate, and again, say if you're a person earning 45,000 euros in the year, you'll fall into that bracket there. So your margin rate, your top rate tax that you're paying is now 30%, which means as a result, the relief you'll get on your pension is reduced down. So you'll only get your 30% on that. That's similar as well with things like nursing home fees. You can get a tax relief, a tax refund, basically, on your nursing home fees that you're paying. It's a huge cost for people. It's a huge burden mm. on families. And as a result, people can get tax relief at the margin rate again. So again, it's if you're at the 40% tax rate, you get 40% back, which is a huge help for people when you're paying. You could be paying 1,500 or 2,000 euros a week towards the nursing home fees. Again, if they bring in the 30%, that will be affected. Now, maybe potentially they could write it in and they could have some sort of a loophole there where they say that the marginal rate or that you get the relief at 40 percent regardless of what your tax rate is. But it's just a consideration Mm, there mm. for people, because especially I think with the pensions is a big worry because we are being encouraged every day to pay into our pension. The pot isn't going to be huge when when it comes to retirement there. You have to add in additional to it there. And like that is a huge difference, the the 10 percent difference on that there. And it might discourage people from contribute to their pensions. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and I'm talking to Marion Ryan, who's Consumer Tax Manager with Taxback. So, so Marion, in your view, looking at other options like adjusting the tax ban, especially at a time of, of high inflation, that's that's a better way to increase the purchasing power of those lower, medium income workers. Is that what your view is? Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's simpler. Mm. <laughs> it's much easier done. It's We do it every year. I suppose it, it, a lot of people talk as well about indexing mm. the, the taxation and they spoke about it in the programme for government. Kind of in practicalities, they kind of nearly do it every year. Anyway, when we're tinkering around with it, it's just not set in stone there that they're indexed there. And I suppose when it comes to indexing as well, it's what you index against. You can either index it against inflation, you can index it against wage increases. I do think that maybe increasing the bands. So the cutoff point, so as I mentioned there, the standard band, 20%, it finishes at 36,800 euros. I do think realistically that should be increased substantially mm-hmm. and it could be done easily because today, 36,000 euros, is that realistically, is that a high income earner? I don't think it is. Not with people with the expenses that people have, the outgoings they have. 
Like if we compare it even with the likes of the UK, you have to start earning £50,000 a year before you're considered a higher earner into the higher tax rate there. So I do think that they should look at increasing the bands. Now, again, that's only going to benefit the middle income earners annually over the €36,000. I think they'd need to combine that with increasing the, the tax credits. So your personal tax credits and your employee tax credits there, because they benefit everyone across the board. So an increase on them will benefit the person earning minimum wage. It will benefit someone earning €25,000 a year. It will also benefit the, the high income earners, but any taxation measures you make are going to benefit the high income earners as well there along the way there. But I think a combination of kind of both would be ideal and then with potentially with the 30% bracket in a long term goal. But I, I don't think it's feasible for budget 23. OK, and I think we, we've heard your predictions on what you think will happen. But how have the government reacted to this? How is it breaking down along party lines? Um, well, I think Leo, as we say, probably took a bit of a, a solo run on it there to, to announce it and bring it. The reason I think he did that was it's very simple and it's obvious to everyone. It's because it's really easy for us to understand that. Mm. <laughs> as we say, there's going to be a new tax break bracket there of 30 percent. It's easy to understand. As you mentioned earlier there, when we start talking about your tax credits or the cut off points. Everyone's probably falling asleep into their, their breakfast at the morning at the moment now listening to me talking about that. It's boring. It's not interesting. It's not easy. For people to, to understand there. So that's, I say, why they, they did it. Yeah. And then, of course, naturally, opposition is going to come in with the the negatives and the downsides to it, which I think is always a good way to kind of nearly test something. I do it here in, in work myself. If I have an idea about something, I share it around the office with everyone because the first thing people will do is they'll find that the, the flaws in, the, in my thinking there for me. So it's a great way to kind of put it out there for people, see what the, see what the general public thinks, see what opposition think and get your feedback and then if it's completely negative towards it, we won't hear mention of it mm. in Budget 23. Or if there is kind of some positive feedback on it there, you might see some implementation of it. Or it could be, as I mentioned, down the line. Yeah, absolutely. It's totally a paper that's designed to kick the tyres on, on public policy yeah. and see see what happens. Superficially, this 30% looks great. Politically, operationally, it very difficult to implement. But the biggest question is you've mentioned there is um, what effect does it actually have? Does it have the desired effect of putting more money in people's pockets? It could become a Pyrrhic victory, politicians winning the battle, but workers losing the war. But for now, I'm afraid we'd have to leave it there. That's Marion Ryan, tax advisor from Taxback. Marion, no one is falling asleep listening to our discussion on tax this morning, but thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, frankly, my dear, we don't give a damn. Is America destined to repeat the sins of its history? The author of a new book that looks at modern America through an old classic. That's after the break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, a new book, The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies that America Tells, uses one of the most popular stories of all times as a lens through which to examine the divisions that are ripping apart the United States today. Sarah Churchwell is the author and she's a professor, fellow in American literature and chair of the Public Understanding of Humanities at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. And she joins me on the line now. Sarah, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Sarah, firstly, congratulations on the book. It is um, a truly uh, remarkable sort of endeavour into storytelling, using uh, great stories, but actually educating us in a very real way about history. But it's it's basically an analysis of the myths around Gone with the Wind, but it's also a story about the modern era. So can you just 
give us an idea about what you were trying to achieve in the book and how the original concept came to you. Yeah, absolutely. So the book begins, actually, as you say, it's, it's, it's very much framed around what's happening now. And it begins with the insurrection um, on January 6th last year, when um, many of the rioters there, and I do call it an insurrection, by the way, it was one, and they, um, but they were carrying the Confederate flag. And one of the most famous images that emerged from that terrible day um, was of a man strolling with the, um, the flag that uh, was, you know, supporting the side of the South um, that was pro-slavery, a white supremacist flag through the halls of um, the United States Capitol. And that was actually the first time in history that that had happened. The South was defeated in the Civil War. And um, and I think around the world, people were shocked and appalled, but didn't necessarily understand the full symbolism of that moment and why it was really so terrible um, in American history. And I think that you really had to be pretty up on your American history to really, you know, get the full weight of, of, of that overturning of the symbolism there. And so it really, that's why the story starts there. But the, the conception for the book, actually, I started thinking about it back in 2017, when um, around the same uh, kinds of divisions and conflicts, when there was the um, terrible protests in Charlottesville, which many of your listeners will remember over the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee, who, of course, was the general who headed the Confederacy and led the insurrection against the United States in 1861. And um, and they, the you know, statues to white supremacists are all over the United States to Confederate leaders, to people who led a civil war against the United States. And that was the, the Charlottesville um, protest, which ended in the, the death of, um, of Heather Hare, who was a peaceful protester. That was the day when Donald Trump, um, about six months into his administration, um, refused to condemn the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis and the Klansmen who were marching, shouting literally blood and soil, you know, literal Nazi slogans, and literally shouting, Jews will not replace us. And he refused to condemn that and called, said that there were very fine people on both sides, right? And that really shocked the world um, with him, you know, kind of showing his true colors. And so at that point, I started thinking about this story about the Confederate statues and the story about the way that we re the, the a way that America has told the history of the Civil War and its understanding of the aftermath of that conflict um, through the story of Gone with the Wind. But um, events kept unfolding. You know, it's been it's been um, a, a busy time in American history, and so it took me a while to to kind of get my and of course Gone with the Wind and the story that it tells is is epic in scale. And there was I ended up with kind of 160 years of American history to think about. So I didn't get it done in 2017, but but we're here now and. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, calamitous events like the insurrection last year just, you know, went that much further to show that that this history still has huge resonances and, and impacts on, on American events today. Yeah, and you probably have had a lot of rewrites of the book, as you say, the, the events that have unfolded. <laughs> yeah, since, you're not kidding. <laughs> yes, since 2017 have been things that, you know, we couldn't have even imagined in 2017, like the insurrection on, on January the 6th and all sorts of other things that have happened in between. But I want to go back to a second for a second to, to Gone with the Wind, because... When it was published in the 1930s, it was obviously an instant bestseller. Uh, when the film version came out, it was one of the most successful Hollywood films of all times. When the book itself was published, was there any controversy around whether the facts about history versus the myth that lay within Gunwood, was there, was there a controversy about it at the time or was it just accepted? 
Mm. It's a really good question. So it's and it's not a hundred percent the case because there was um, there was some controversy around it, right? So there was a debate and and a difference of opinion. But for the most part, um, it was absolutely accepted as an accurate depiction of American history. And Margaret Mitchell, the author of the novel, certainly believed that um, that she had meticulously researched it. She thought that it was absolutely. She said it was as accurate as you know as it could possibly be. The problem was that she had only researched the opinions of uh, mm. white supremacist, you know, apologists for slavery and people who were literally Klansmen. I mean, those were the opinions that she had gone to. But much of white America agreed with that. Now, there were some holdouts and there, some of them were white Americans and some of them were white Southern Americans who said this is nonsense. But the, the true documentary history of the American Civil War and its aftermath, the period that we call Reconstruction, was really just starting to be told. And the year before Gone with the Wind came out, the great African-American historian W.E.B. Du Bois had just published the first major work of African-American revisionist history that had said, hang on, this is all really, really, you know, um, white apologist, white supremacist. Your whole point of view here is um, deeply, deeply racist in the way the historiography was being told. But that was just published in 1935 and it hadn't yet changed people's um, um, perspective. That didn't happen until the civil rights era. So American history had a long way to go to, to catch up, really. Yeah, it's very interesting. We tend to think that fake news is, is a new phenomenon, but of course, propaganda has been used in different ways for a long, long time. Were you shocked? I mean, you're obviously somebody who's very au fait with, with American history. You've studied it a lot. Were you shocked in researching this book in any way? Did anything that you found about the historical consequences of post-Civil War America, did anything shock you? Did you find any new stuff that you hadn't known before? Yeah, I found a lot of stuff that I hadn't known before. And that was partly why the book expanded the way that it did and took longer um, to do, because I'm not a trained historian of the 19th century. Right? I trained as a, as a literature scholar, and then my specialty is the American 1920s and 30s. So, of course, the period into which Gone with the Wind was published and the film emerged is my expertise, but not the earlier stuff. And so I really did have to research it and, and catch myself up. And reading the primary documents, um, the, the violence, the brutality of... Uh, of what happened to black people after emancipation, after the Civil War, is deeply, deeply shocking. And um, and I don't think that most even well-educated Americans know this. I really think that you have to have done a PhD in American history, basically, to know this stuff. It's not part of our popular memory. It's not part of the way that we talk about the atrocities of the American past. And that's really one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I think that it needs to be. And I think that we have to tell the truth about this. We have to understand how much of it we suppressed because it made us uncomfortable. And it didn't sit well with our myths about being a liberal democracy and about being, you know, a plural and tolerant society. So in some some ways we are and some of the time we are, but a lot of the time we haven't been. And to, we, I think we need to, you know, really reckon with that dark side of our history as well. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, it was really the specifics, of which I don't want to go into because they're really, really brutal. I mean, mm. I have a trigger warning at the beginning of the book, but it was it was things like that. Um, and this was stuff I've been working on for a while, but the but the ways in which, um, you know, people think I'll give one example. Right? People think about lynching, for example, as something that happened, you know, furtively in the dark of night where you know, a small group would, would grab a poor man from his home and hang him quickly in the woods, right? Yeah, and, 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 there's, and, some, and there's some shocking images contained within yeah. the book of, of just that. 
Yeah, but that would have been a, a kind outcome for many yeah. of the victims of lynching who were tortured. They were they were tortured in ways that are unspeakable for people listening on a radio right now, which is why I'm saying mm. I'm not going to go into details. But but dismemberment, um, you know, they burned people alive, tortured them in really unspeakable ways. And there's one um, story that I that I tell in the book that comes from firsthand documents um, about, and this was happening in the um, the early 1870s, um, and um, a, a black man was was taken into the woods and, and he was given the choice um, between burning, being burned alive or um, cutting himself. And I'll put it like that. And people can imagine what he was forced to do. And he did that to himself. And um, so he mutilated himself and he went to find the nearest doctor and the nearest doctor wasn't home because the doctor was one of the Klansmen who had been on the raid, you know, torturing this man. Right. And that is the reality of the white South for black people after the war. Yeah. And that's not something that Americans today talk about. No. And, and maybe part of that echo chamber that exists has existed for a very long time um, about a, a history that that people would have, you believe, as opposed to what actually happened uh, exactly. from a factual perspective. But if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Professor Sarah Churchwell about her new book, Gone with the Wind and the Lies that America Tells. Um, Sarah, this is a very timely book, um, depressing in another way, because um, a lot of the discussions that are going on in America at the moment are about the fundamental path that it might take in terms of um, its own democracy. Can I just ask you, do you think there's an awareness uh, that this is an existential crisis situation in America? Or do you think that there's a latent belief that democracy in an American context has been achieved and that this is just a sort of um, a temporary crisis, that it's fundamentally safe and secure? I think that's a really, really good question. And it's hard to answer because we're talking about a country that has 330 million people. So it's very difficult to generalize. And I don't mean that to be like a pedantic scholar, but it is difficult to generalize about that many people. But so what I would say is that... No, sorry, those- yeah, I just want to clarify. The only reason I'm asking it is because, you know, from one remove, sometimes it's easy to see things happening, even if it's happening in slow motion. I'm just wondering if, if there's a sense of that in America. Do American yeah, people no, know that? I think there is, but I think it's really kind of, it's, that's one of the divisions in the country, is what I was going to say, right, is that it's half and half, really. I think half the country knows that we're in an absolutely, as you say, it's an existential crisis, that democracy is hanging by a thread. And half the country can see that and is, and is watching this slow motion horror show and doing everything that we can to stop it. The other half of the country is complacent in the ways that you're saying and is, and, you know, and, and think that everything's fine and that this has all been overblown and, and that, you know, what Trump did wasn't really that bad, was it? And, and that and and are deeply invested in believing, as you say, that the democracy is achieved. So I think that that in itself is symptomatic of the divisions in the country because the, it goes back to the point you made earlier about fake news and alternate realities and propaganda. That there's always that's the story of of Gone with the Wind is is a story about um, creating a, a happier alternate reality that you can live with, it's, and it's about denialism. I mean, fundamentally, that's what my book is about. It's about a history of American denialism, and so a great many Americans are still invested in that denialism, which is why I wrote the book. But certainly, there are a lot of Americans like me who know we're in a crisis, absolutely, and that's part of the, as I say, that's part of the conflict that we're in is trying to persuade each other um, that that's what we're looking at, what reality actually is. Yeah, let's go back to um, where the book actually starts with the the insurrection, the riots of January the 6th. In the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, there were, of course, hearings into the racist violence um, similar to the committees that we're we're seeing now. Uh, 
Were those uh, hearings important? Did they actually change anything? Yeah, they were. They were very efficacious in some ways more than these um, than the ones we're having right now appear to be, although, of course, ours is still unfolding. But so the the um, the hearings in particular that you're referring to um, were the hearings into the first clan, um, which uh, the first Ku Klux Klan, which emerged immediately after the Civil War. And um, and it was a it was really a, um, an investigation into into the white supremacist violence in the Deep South and into the brutality that black Americans were facing. And the result of those hearings was that it, um Congress passed new laws empowering the, the president and the federal government to act to to suppress the Klan. And one of the first things they did was they crushed the first Klan because the Congress passed new laws um, empowering Grant to do so. And he said that that was, you know, um, a major priority. And so they wiped out the first Klan. Um, and you could do something now, you know, in, in, in similar ways. So absolutely, they took action. They took swift um, action. And um, it didn't solve all of the problems, but it, it certainly cut off, you know, one of the Hydra's heads, um, you know, successfully. It was just other ones sprang up around it. Um, and and Sarah, we saw this week Liz Cheney lose her congressional mm. seat um, and the remarkable role she has played in the committee hearings hasn't obviously served her very well. What's your what do you, what's your take on how those committee hearings are going? I think they are moving the needle. You know, I wasn't sure at first that they would, but it seems pretty clear that they are. And, you know, they've been they've been very, very well handled, I think. And they've been, you know, compelling television. I mean, it was the major kind of drama of the summer. Right. And and that works. And it's important that people feel that it's gripping and that it matters um, and that they don't tune out. So I, I think it is changing people's minds, people that we see the polls um, on you know almost a weekly basis. More and more people believe that Trump should be prosecuted for his actions after the election more and more people believe that that this is a danger to American democracy. So I think it is changing people's minds. And, um, and you know, and we'll have to see whether whether Cheney and others like her can reclaim the, the Republican Party from Trumpism. I mean, that remains very much an open question. It will be interesting to see what she does next. Yeah. I mean, I'm among those who thinks that she's likely to throw her hat into the presidential ring. Let's see where that goes. It's just a final question for you then. And it's something that we ask a lot of people who come on here to talk about America. We cover America a lot because it's so important to Ireland from a historical perspective and also in a business sense. But um, do you think that American people are more susceptible to myth, fake news? Is there a kind of sedulous following of the old stories, the constitutional um, grounding that it has, the founding fathers? Is that down to kind of naivety or is there willful blindness there to things like the far right um, evolving situation that we see happening, like the racism that happens there? Yeah, I think it's very much the latter. I think it's willful blindness. And I think that's the phrase. And that's the the denialism that I was talking about. It really is closing your eyes to what you don't want to see. And I think that we're probably not uniquely susceptible, but we are highly susceptible as a society, as a culture to myth making um, and to those kinds of, of fantasies because we fetishize our founding documents in that way, because so much of our history was based on storytelling and that we didn't have other kinds of organic shared histories, that this was a group of people, you know, coming together through settler colonialism and through immigration who created these stories in order to f- 
to, to you know, um, produce a shared culture. But that means that we're very, very dependent on those stories and stories can change. And as stories change, you know, so does the identity of the nation. And I do think that we are highly, highly susceptible to myth-making as a country. And, and right now we're seeing the damaging effects that myth-making can have when it's not, you know, positive myth-making that pulls people together, but is poisonous myth-making that is about, um, you know, about shoring up power and, and, um, and stoking divisiveness. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for taking the time to join us here today on News Talk and sharing your your book with us. It's a it's a fascinating read, as I say, for anyone who's interested in America or politics or the world around us today. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Sarah Churchill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time every Sunday morning, we are, of course, available as a podcast verse on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, hope or hype. Is hydrogen the solution to all of our energy problems? We'll talk to Hydrogen Ireland. And if you want to get in contact with the show, you can contact us on takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and they'll be reviewing all of your Sunday newspapers. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.